arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Patch Kincaid, a man with no past who has just recently learned his name, is at a crossroads. Rosselli and his confederates are paying Patch, having earned Rosselli's trust in the past, an extraordinary amount of money. Sherry, the young woman he met at the Fox Theater in Spokane, has agreed to drive him to Las Vegas, and then she will head north, back home. Patch is conflicted with the prospect of being rich, yet he has a stifled memory and is in an unknown world. The assignment given to him by Rosselli would be extremely dangerous if he is paid so well. And he has begun to fall in love with Sherry Thomas. We join Patch and Sherry, several hours out of Los Angeles, having rumbled through the darkened desert. Ahead, the lights of Vegas produce a brightening glow in the distance as we begin Episode 2 of Return to Dallas. Las Vegas, Nevada, Thursday night, July 25th, 1963, 10.05 p.m. Sherry had not mentioned what she would do after meeting with McWillie, and Patch did not ask. The cooler night air flooded across the white vinyl seats. Patch rolled up the side window halfway. The seaside chirping birds of So Much in Love by the time slowly melded into the song. He snapped his fingers as the vocals kicked in. The Las Vegas lights, a burgeoning glow only a few minutes before, brightened like a new dawn out of the desert darkness. That's a nice song, Patch. I really like it. The Las Vegas Strip blazed with a neon barrage from hotel to hotel. Sherry turned around as they passed the Sands Hotel. The blue light washed over her face. Imagine Frank Sinatra right in there. I'd like to hear him sing. I hear Sinatra is personal friends with President Kennedy. Patch nodded. Well, I'll call Frank and tell him we'll be a little late because we have to meet with Louis McWillie and check into the Thunderbird. You do that. He looked at her dark eyes and wide face flickering with each passing hotel sign. Her mouth opened at the next hotel and she swung her eyes upward from the passenger window. A neon cowboy, a hundred feet high, frontier, bigger than that milk bottle? Oh yeah. She leaned to her right as a parade of glitzy hotels continued unabated. Patch signaled and turned into a shell station. I don't want to put you in danger. Sweetness, we're already in danger. 10.17 p.m. Our lead story on July 25th, 1963. An incredible development in the nuclear age. The White House has announced that representatives of the United States, the United Kingdom, and the Soviet Union have signed the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. This document will lead to the eventual elimination of nuclear weapons tests in the atmosphere, outer space, and underwater. Signing the agreement tentatively approving were U.S. Undersecretary of State W. Averill Harriman, Soviet Foreign Minister Andrei Gromyko, and British Minister of Science, Lord Hailsham's in Moscow. Patch twisted off the radio. Hard to believe, she said. They've been detonating all that radiation for years. 
Kennedy is pushing this. I bet the military won't like it. He noticed a large bird attached to the roof were capped in a gold frame marquee. Patch read the marquee out loud, Sammy Sleaze. I've seen him on late night TV. I'd hate to be in the audience when he comes down there and starts his put-down routine. Sometimes he wears a devil's outfit and has a fake pitchfork. We'll pass on Sammy Sleaze. He pulled into a space along the brick wall. Two things. I'm a little anxious about this meeting with McWillie because I have no idea what I did for Rosselli and his friends. What's the second thing? Two thousand a week? What the hell do they want me to do? You should have asked Walter the Knife. I think when you're with Walter the Knife, you let Walter the Knife do the talking. He opened the door and stepped into the cooler air. Huge, shiny cars whooshed by on the strip. People were on the move everywhere. He opened the side door. She grabbed his extended hands and stepped into the lot. The apricot top and tan Bermuda shorts she had purchased at the vault in Santa Barbara fit her body snugly. Kennedy is a leader, Patch. Do you really think the Russians will keep their word about the test ban? She shrugged her shoulders. They have to. Look what happened last fall. Maybe you don't remember, but we had students at school filling fallout shelters last October. Even way up in Spokane? Ninety million Americans almost died. Where were you before Spokane, Patch? I was on the cliff overlooking the river. I don't remember anything before that. They reached the elongated green canopy with bright red letters. Like a snippet of a movie, their reflection appeared just for a few moments in the hotel window. He liked the lightweight blue Hawaiian shirt and chinos. She had bought him in a store three doors down from the vault. I think you were definitely hypnotized. Probably by the government, because Rosselli specifically told you to stay away from the government people. I agree. For some reason, someone doesn't want me to know who I am. Don't look at me. I'm losing the money at the track, she said, imitating Walter the knife. Patch smiled as the bellhop in the green suit pulled open the glass door. He tipped his cap as they passed. The inside noise generated a whole new atmosphere. In the soft light clusters, gyrating gamblers yanked chrome slot machine levers. A combination of cigarette and cigar smoke floated through the lobby. Vegas is the place to lose money. Sherry stroked her chin. I wonder what would happen to Moon if he tried to contact Rosselli. Rosselli would get him where it hurts. She smiled and looked up at him. You didn't mean what I thought you meant. Of course not. Moon doesn't have a pair. She giggled and dropped to her knees as she fully laughed. He held her steady as he waltzed up to the long walnut counter. The bald-headed guy in the gray tweed jacket tilted his head as he squinted disapprovingly at Sherry. Then he faced Patch. Sir? Sherry pressed her lips, but turned when she began another bout of silliness. Mr. Rosselli said I should ask for Mr. McWillie. And you are? Patch Kincaid. The man twisted his lips at Sherry, her back still toward him. Yes, sir, I'll be right back. Her eyes filled as she started again. She took deep breaths before she simmered down. We make a fine pair. Pair? Patch put some change in her hand and pointed at the slots along the wall. Why don't you try your luck? Good idea. Remember, you have to get three, not a pair. Patch heard a few more bursts as he placed his palms on the counter. She pulled the lever on the center machine. The machine spun. She turned and shrugged her shoulders. 
I lost. You and Walt are the knife. Try again. She nodded and dropped the change into the machine. One oranges, two oranges, three patch. She jumped around as if she were on a pogo stick and the money poured onto the blue flowery rug. You lucky dog. Patch trotted across the rug and roared in laughter as he squatted down. He almost fell over, scooping up the money. When he finally looked up, a balding man with a square face and a pointed nose folded his hands. He wore a brown suit, thin green tie, and baggy pants. Cheetahs will be prosecuted. No, I really won, said Sherry. She helped Patch to his feet. I don't need the money. Can I quote you on that, Mr. Kincaid? He reached out his hand. I'm Lewis McWillie. Patch closed his eyes and shook his head. Mr. McWillie, I didn't know. Thank you for meeting us. I got the word from L.A. yesterday. Listen, it's more relaxing down at the bar. Sure. This is Sherry. She's with me. Sherry gave a reassuring nod. With a quizzical expression, McWillie shook her hand. Sherry, pleasure. Chapter 9 The Thunderbird Hotel The Center Lounge Thursday night, July 25th, 1963, 10.17 p.m. The waxed wood bar extended far down into the main building. At least a dozen bartenders in white aprons and black bow ties waited on well-dressed customers. The lounge buzzed with cleavage-laden waitresses in black shorts, tiptoeing between the rounded tables like choreographed dances. A mixture of bass music from numerous sources shook the carpet. McWillie escorted them to an elevated table bench wrapped with a soft tan fabric. He lifted the white telephone receiver. We tell Jack our guests had arrived. He set down the phone as a Filipino waiter in a white shirt and tie rushed over. McWillie faced Patch. What can I get you to drink? Patch looked at Sherry. Beer is good. Make it two, said Patch. Make it three, Puma, said McWillie. He leaned forward as the little waiter scurried away. Patch, I had extended conversation with numerous associates. Conversations centered around you. Me? Him? We have no idea where you've been for the last two years. I worked in Cuba, Patch, at the Sansui and the Tropicana. I know people in Cuba. He leaned forward and lowered his voice. You haven't been with Castro in the last two years, right? Why would I do that? Asked Patch, even though he did not know what McWillie was talking about. Good. I was in Miami in 1961. I know this guy Sanchez won't bother anyone thanks to your friend Mankiewicz. We owe you for arranging that. We owe you more than I can say. His blue eyes sparkled as he spoke. We need surveillance done on a certain individual. Don't let him out of your sight. Who is he? He really sat up and the lines tightened on his forehead. We all like you, Patch, but don't ask stupid questions. It doesn't matter who he is. What matters is what he's doing. The short man in a blue double-breasted suit held his hat. He had pinpoint eyes and a wise guy look. How's it going, boys? And he saw Patch seated at the table. Patchy, they told me you were alive. You son of a bitch. You, Jack, watch your language. McWillie motioned to the waiter. Puma, get Jack a coat. The waiter nodded and immediately headed for the nearest bartender. Ma'am, Jack said, slightly bowing and tipping his hat. Patch had no recollection of meeting this man. You look tired, Patch, like you've been through the ringer, like you've aged ten years. 
Jack's hip creamed into Patch's side, shaking the table. McWillie waited and then spoke. I was just detailing the operation for Patch. Good opportunity, buddy, he said, pressing his lips and nodding. The man's name is Oswald, said McWillie, and he's a communist and a loner. Oh, he's a Marxist, said Jack. McWillie sneered at Jack and faced Patch. Oswald may have communist tendencies, Patch, and my people tell me he's an angry man, maybe even psychotic. You know, the bad childhood, etc. And I don't have to tell you how the Reds almost blew up the world last fall. I'll tell you straight up, there are a lot of us in this country who never want to get our asses back to the wall again. I've been to Cuba many times. Castro is a little prick, snapped Jack. Jack, shut up. You never can keep your mouth shut. Jack nodded his head. Oswald is involved in a lot of crap for a lot of people. Jack will get you going. You want to know what this man is doing 24 hours a day. You will be paid 2000 per report. Via Jack? asked Patch. No, no, you'll be paid via your post office box. Patch leaned toward McWillie. If I have to keep track of this guy, how do I let you know? We had thought about doing it in writing, you know, a journal. It's a better way, three and a half inch reel to reel. Jack will make the arrangements to get the recorder to you. You will describe exactly what Oswald does and where he goes. Street numbers, describe the people he's with. We'll take care of deciphering it. Just do your job and nobody will bother you. That's exactly right. We want you to operate with impunity, Patch. When this operation is over, you'll have the opportunity for other operations. All above board, I assure you. Sherry unfolded her hands. Mr. McWillie, uh, what if Oswald spots us? Make sure that doesn't happen. And I'll warn you both. The government wants to find you, Patch. They have no idea what happened to you two years ago, and they really want answers. Alan Dulles fired because of the Bay of Pigs. Minkowitz was released from Cuba after the missile crisis and is still being debriefed. Minkowitz? Patch had that surge of emotion and memory glitch as he did when Kennedy's name was mentioned. I'll make it a point to stay away from them all. Like I said, Dulles is gone and replaced by a Catholic, John McCone. Richard Helms is withholding everything and all the shenanigans in the Caribbean from his boss. If McCone knew he'd fire their asses and so would Kennedy, all along that held back the Castro assassination activities from McCone. These men are experts on covering up to their superiors. Plausible denial. Patch nodded his head. I understand. Good. Are you in? He looked at Sharon. You'll have to check with me, Patch. Yeah, I'm in. McWillie shook his hand. That's fantastic. This will help us in ways you'll never know. He removed a red card with white lettering from his shirt pocket. If anyone gets on you, Patch, you call me directly at this hotel. What about Jack? McWillie raised his brow. Everybody has their role. Jack doesn't need his ass in a sling. Jack's eyes brightened up. Thank you. Unless things get screwed up. Jack choked on his coke and ice. Hey, I don't need the squeeze. You know all the cops on the force, Jack. He turned back to Patch and Sherry. My main point is you just do your job. Don't worry about anyone else. Keep it in all itty-bitty compartments, said Jack. Exactly. He quickly slid out of the booth without drinking his beer. Please thank Mr. Rosselli. I will. 
he looked over to Jack. Jack will take over now. Good luck. Thank you. McWillie moved along the bar and soon blended in with the patrons. Then he was gone. Jack pulled his coke across the table. Sherry smiled at Patch. Where are we headed, Jack? You just follow me and Cleo. Cleo? Asked Sherry. My wife, sweetie. I'm Sherry. You brought your wife? Asked Patch. Well, my dog, Patchy. He reached in his pocket and removed a small gold case containing white pills. He quickly deposited the pill in his mouth and swigged the coke. I'm just a little tired from the drive in Vegas. All in a day's work. I want to swim some laps and take in some boxing matches downtown before I go back. I wanted to be at the convention center on Monday, but I couldn't make it on time. What happened on Monday? What? Where have you been? Liston beat the living piss out of Patterson in the first round. We heard it on the radio. A wicked uppercut. Patterson couldn't even tie him up. Just as well. Drive all the way up here for one rounder? The beer is one tough boy. The beer? asked Patch. Liston! They used to use him to make collections up in St. Louis. Nobody survives Sonny's uppercut. And his eyes welled up. Problem is, he's on the stuff. Patch looked at Sherry. Oh, you two are welcome to come with me tonight. No, I think we'll pass, Jack. Get some rest before the drive, wherever we're going. Suit yourselves. He finished the coke and then leaned back. He removed a prodigious roll of cash from his pocket. Patch noticed a small handgun. You know what the most important thing is in this operation, Patchy? What's that? You keep your mouth shut. Don't ask any questions, and you don't take any shit from anyone. You take the play away. What about pictures of Oswald? Hey, did anyone ask for pictures? Asked Jack as he slid from the booth. Look at you two. You go together like lemon and lime. Which one's lemon and which one's lime? Asked Sherry. You figure that out. McWillie has rooms. Just go to the desk. I'm heading down to the convention center. I'm driving east at 9 a.m. sharp. Capiche? Capiche, they answered together. Good. Au revoir. Sherry hit Patch's shoulder. Just a wild guess, Patchy, but you're a member of organized crime. Looks that way, Lemon. She had a full natural grin as if she had forgotten all her troubles with Ricky Blaze. I thought I was lying. Jack looks as if they hired him from a standing acting crew in Hollywood. Capiche? Patch laughed as he held the beer. Why are you going forward with this, Patch? Patch stroked his chin. You're paying me money like it's like it's being printed in Roselli's basement. And that's another thing. Roselli is slick. He just sucked me into this. Now I'm afraid to back out. One side of me actually wants to do a good job for him. On the surface, it seems pretty simple. You follow this Oswald, record your observation and send the tape, and pick up at the P.O. box. And put up with Jack, said Patch, laughing. He likes to go around thinking he's big man. Look how he rolled out that cash. Come on. Capiche? Capiche. Patch, I think I should go back home. I'd just get in the way. Patch shook his head, but he could see she had made up her mind. He pressed his lips and removed his wallet from his back pocket. I want to settle up with you then, Sherry. And thank you for what you did for getting me here. She had that same dazed look in her eyes as she did when she recounted her saga with Ricky Blaze. I just thought you were lost. You don't even know who you are. Well, at least I have a name. 
He handed her a thousand dollars and she casually looked through the stack of bills. Patch, this is way too much. There's wear on your car, too. Will you drive straight through to Spokane? She raised her brows and her eyes moistened. It's over 16 hours, I don't know. If I leave now, I can be in Spokane tomorrow night. I can look you up when this is over. She hugged him tightly. I hope you find out who you are. Patch's hand pressed against her thick hair. Her perfume formed a singular identity. Then he held her shoulders. I hope everything works out for you, too. Thanks for listening to me. So, I guess this is it. He held her hands and focused on her eyes. Call me if you need anything, please. I worry about you, Patch. She closed her teary eyes, spun around, and headed back across the bar. Patch just stood by the booth for the longest time. He had no right to hold her back, but he just did not think she would head back to Spokane alone. Can I get you something else? asked Puma. No, thank you. I'm going back to my room. Get some sleep. Chapter 10 The Thunderbird Hotel July 26, 1963, 2.15 a.m. Between consciousness and sleep, Patch's imagination overlapped with a dream or deep thoughts. He walked across a landing field surrounded by barren tundra, maybe Greenland or Alaska. A contingent of military men led him into a spider-like dome that appeared like a portable hospital unit inside. Like a strobe light flashing, he was suddenly hooked up to several tubes. He had been flown by jet to this place. A woman in scrubs told him her people were trying to keep him from the Chinese by selectively removing his memories. Dr. Moon is a very vindictive individual, she said. A dark-haired colonel spoke next. They need your retrograde knowledge because they believe that Minkowitz is dying in Florida. Being treated is painless, said the woman. The distant telephone's ringing became louder. Patch sat up in the hotel bed. What the hell? He reached for the phone near the clock radio and lifted the receiver to his ear. Hello, Sherry? The line clicked and went dead. Still groggy, he thought about the dream. The Chinese. Mankiewicz. Retrograde. Then he pushed the red button for the front desk. This is Mr. Kincaid in 104. Did anyone just call the switchboard and ask for my room? Hold on, please. Patch closed his eyes as he lay back on the pillow. Mr. Kincaid, I have Miss Olson here. She took the call. Thanks. Hello, Mr. Kincaid, said the squeaky Miss Olson. A man just called a few minutes ago. He had a raspy voice. Patch sat up quickly on the pillows. What? Did he give his name? No, sir. Thank you. He hung up the phone, but when he heard rattling in the parking lot, he leaped from the bed. In his boxes, he pulled back the drapes. A shadowy form slithered along the cars toward an idling 18-wheeler parked diagonally near the fence. Two men were inside the darkened truck cab. Patch dressed quickly and dragged open the sliders in front of the drapes. The truck engine now idled close enough to smell the fumes. He darted between the parked cars and cut at an angle to a whitewashed stockade fence. The light in the cab illuminated the two men, probably truck drivers. He crouched behind a Buick near the huge truck. Moon might not have been in the area when he called the hotel. Patch would have to check with the front desk. He backtracked, and then he started toward his room slider. Dr. Alexander Moon stepped around a smaller truck. 
He gripped a rifle and pointed it directly at Patch. The distinctively hoarse voice halted him in the middle of the lot. Stop right there, Patch. What do you want with me? Oh, what do I want with you? Your plan has been foiled. You will not accomplish your mission. What mission? Who am I? Why has my memory been wiped? Moon walked closer and raised his gun. Your stalling tactics will do you no good. Goodbye, Patch. And Patch, I would have told you. Told me what? Finally figured it out. I know why he died. He was off the coast of Florida. Who? Gunfire echoed off the hotel walls. Moon's body lifted off the ground, and his weapon flipped across the lot. Blood surrounded the doctor's arms and spread on the asphalt. Two men in suits from the front of the hotel ran into the lot. Another man in a tuxedo swept in from the right. McWilly, in a black tuxedo, held a long-barreled handgun as he trotted behind the first two men. He's dead, Mr. McWilly. Is that Moon, Patch? Patch walked forward, perplexed by Moon's last words. Moon's gray hair flowed onto the asphalt. Yes, that's Moon. Good. He looked up at McWilly. Thank you. Who the Christ is Moon? Scientist. He thinks I had some kind of information and wanted me dead. McWilly turned to the turtleneck man. Bring him out to the desert. What's in the desert? asked Patch. McWilly paused as if he was about to deliver an off-quoted line. There are graves dug outside of town, just waiting for troublemakers. Understood. Close call, Patch. I told Jack to make sure you're armed. How did you know about Moon? McWilly grinned. You have guardian angels watching over you, Patch. The Thunderbird Hotel, Las Vegas, Nevada, Friday morning, July 26th, 1963, 8.30 a.m. Patch leaped for the ringing phone. His heart jump-started. Hello. Patchy, I'm ready to hit the road. Patchy, is that you? Jack, I'm just getting up. We had a rough night out there. So I heard. You should have called me. You were out. Oh, yeah. Listen, I've ordered breakfast for you in your room. That's nice of you. No problem. We've got a long ride. It's a one-way trip to Tipperary. Sorry about the broad. Me too. I'll be ready in a half an hour. By the way, your man in the moon guy. You know, the guy they plugged in the lot? What about him? He was looking for Johnny Rosselli after Thursday's Dodgers game. He said he was your friend and asked where you were. Really? They told him to hit the road, but then they tailed him. Two things, Patchy. The word is out that you walked right in the parking lot and faced the bastard. Your operation is much too important for some dumbass to mess it up. What's the second thing? I got you at 38. Thanks. Don't mention it. Don't be afraid to use it if you have to. I take care of my friends and they take care of me. Capiche? Capiche. Somebody knocked on the hallway door. Patch hung up the phone. Then he unplugged the small lamp and removed the bulb and shade. He held it in the air. Who is it? Room service. He stared at the door and approached, gripping the neck of the lamp. Patch slid the chain and turned the lock. He raised the lamp and pulled back the door. In her light jacket, Shari stood with both hands on the handle of the food cart. I thought you might be hungry. He ran around the cart and hoisted her into the air. I couldn't leave you back here, Patch. Capiche? Capiche. He lowered her to the carpet. Then they came into a tender embrace. Her lips were smooth and sensual. 
When they broke, she had a huge smile. Then she shook her head. I got to some place called Pony Springs in the middle of nowhere. Patch let his hand glide along her thick, dark hair. The whole way out of Vegas, I was a wreck. Patch, I just couldn't leave. I didn't want you to leave. He placed his fingertips on her cheeks and kissed her again. Some things only happen once, Patch. I have no idea where this Oswald thing will lead. Two heads are better than one. Maybe there was a reason why you left last night. I don't understand. Moon. He came armed and ready to kill. McWillie's boys gunned him down in the parking lot. He was about to kill me. She hugged him again. Oh, Patch, he's dead. He said my plan was foiled and I wouldn't complete my mission. He said he had finally figured out why somebody died. It was something to do with the coast of Florida. That makes no sense. Well, to Moon, it made great sense. She looked into his eyes. What do you mean? Another dream, vivid. Some military operation way up north. They had tubes hooked into me to selectively wipe my memory, Sherry. Then it's true. But why Spokane? Pat shook his head. I don't know. But I do know that Moon and the Chinese were after me. Whoever got at my memory was afraid that Moon would find out things. And they mentioned this Mankiewicz. That's all. Patchy, that's more than enough. Jack counted something in the trunk of his Oldsmobile and recorded it on a clipboard. He turned when he saw Patch walking with Sherry across the parking lot. Then he slammed the trunk shut. Well, how do you like that? Lemon and Lime back together again. Where are we headed, Jack? Just follow me. He threw the clipboard in the back seat and the dog barked. Did you tell her about Moon? He told me. What a relief. McWillie said he was a nutcase. That's an understatement, said Patch. Okay, Jack. You're in charge. The way I like it. As Jack shuffled over to his Oldsmobile, Sherry grabbed Patch's shoulder. Patch, I've been trying to understand what Moon was talking about. Who died off of Florida? You're asking me? You think you shot somebody and they started running away from Moon? I remember Moon was chasing me. If somebody had died, I would have remembered that, too. Chapter 11 Henley Service Station, Route 66, Gallup, New Mexico, Friday afternoon, July 26th. 1963, 2.45 p.m. With the Impala parked diagonal to the gas station, Jack's mouth forever flapped inside the phone booth. Several times he pounded on the plexiglass with his closed fist. Every time we get near Jack's trunk, he gets nervous, she said. Patch looked out at the black and white Texas license plates. Then he lifted his shiny 38. I didn't mean you had to shoot him. If he doesn't shut up, I may just pop him. Then his smile drifted away. He stared at the gun and realized once again Roselli's assignment was dangerous. She pushed him toward the door. Let's get a Coke in the machine. Patch extended both arms into the air as he stepped onto the gritty sand. Jack's voice carried in the warm New Mexico air. Patch wandered over toward his car. The Oldsmobile 88 had a large chrome bumper and pointed rocket red taillights. Patch squatted down and ran his fingers along the chrome 88 emblem below the trunk on the left. He slid his finger in the crack and the trunk moved up slightly. Inside the expanse were dozens of rifles, a few automatic weapons and wood ammunition boxes. 
Hatch immediately pushed the truck back to its original position and spun around. Did he see you, Patch? I don't think so. He's pretty upset on the phone. What is he doing with all those guns? Guns for money, said Patch in a low voice. They walked up to the red and white Coke machine in the shade of the stucco station. Patch pulled out enough change to cover three bottles of Coke. As if he were playing the slots, he deposited the quarters. Each Coke had a distinctive tumbling sound as the green bottle slid to the bottom of the machine. She removed the bottles one by one and gave them to Patch. He flipped off the caps on the side opener and handed one of the cold bottles to Sherry. Thanks, Patchy. Don't mention it, he said, opening his bottle. In the hot sun, he let the cold, sweet caramel liquid bubble down his dry throat. He wiped his sweaty forehead with the bottle. Man, it's hot out here. She dabbed a tissue on his brow. There. Thanks. Patch checked his watch. Jack had been in the telephone booth for 15 minutes. He held the last bottle and started toward the booth. What's so important to be on the phone all this time? Judging by what's in the trunk, I'd say he has a lot to talk about. Did you see the way he looked at McWillie back in Las Vegas? Like he idolizes him. Patch took another swig and panned the long highway stretch beyond the booth. He probably does. McWillie is a big deal Vegas guy. What about Jack? She asked, grinning. What about him? Laughed Patch. Hey, you found out who I am. Then Jack slammed down the phone and kicked open both doors. His white shirt was unbuttoned and the sleeves were rolled up. He tucked the shirt in his dark trousers. His handgun was strapped in a leather side holster. Stupid morons. They should be lucky they're even working. You all right, Jack? Asked Patch as he handed him the moisture-dripped glass bottle. Thanks, Patchy. He took a big sip and coughed. The cough blended into words. Yeah, just a little labor trouble. That was my second call. Listen, your man, Oswald, is now in New Orleans. Why? His face contorted as if it were still in the booth and he was still angry and then he jammed his finger into Patch's shoulder. Stop asking your questions. It'll only get you into trouble. I understand. Good. Sherry took a sip of Coke. You should be wearing that 38 I gave you. I gave you the strap. Somebody shoots at you. It's not going to do you any good if your piece is lying on the back seat. Patch nodded as he finished the Coke. Jack looked down the road as he tilted the Coke bottle, but he spoke before he drank. Come on, Lemon and Lime. Let's get off the reservation. Chapter 12 Egyptian Lounge Restaurant, Dallas, Texas, Saturday, July 27, 1963. With Sherry asleep on his shoulder, Patch followed Jack's Oldsmobile into the parking lot of the Egyptian Lounge Restaurant. He shut off the car in front of a sign for extra parking under the light pole. The neon restaurant sign covered the white and palace seats with a magenta hue. Sherry, her head on his shoulder, opened her eyes wide and yawned. Where are we, Patch? We crossed Dallas on the highway. Jack patted his dog in the front seat of the 88. He closed the door and started toward the restaurant. Opening the restaurant door, Jack motioned with quick head nods for them to come inside. Patch looked into Sherry's brown eyes. I thought we'd be at a hotel by now. I can't even keep my eyes open. Jack waited at the door. Come on, come on. 
Who are we talking to, Jack? You listen to me, Patchy. You keep your mouth shut around Mr. Campisi. He shrugged his shoulders at Sherry. Even after midnight, the music played through the speakers. Garlic and unidentifiable spices inundated the tiny restaurant. A few people sat around tables to his right. Like a moth drawn to a porch light bulb, Jack gravitated to a booth along the opposite wall. Seated at the booth was a man with dark hair so thick that the comb marks were visible on the sides. He had a straight set of teeth and piercing black eyes. The man looked over his shoulder at Patch. Again, Jack motioned with short, jerky movements. Patch placed his hand on Sherry's back and guided her across the room. A waiter with a pot belly appeared with two glasses of chilled water. An older woman wearing a white apron slid sliced scallop bread on the linen tablecloth. The bread's freshly baked essence drifted through the air. Campisi put on his reading glasses and checked something off on a typed invoice. Then the woman removed it from the table. Only moments later, the bartender carried two heaping ceramic dishes of steaming lasagna. Campisi and Jack crossed the restaurant. Campisi stopped at the bar and briefly extended his hand to the little grunt with short hair above the ears and a bald scalp. Jack nodded his head as Campisi spoke. Then he disappeared into the back room. The bald guy pressed his wide lips and held Jack by the arm. I want to know the whole story, Jack. Jack flung his elbow and let the man go. Just shut up. We don't need to know anything right now. Jerry tapped Jack's arm. Am I being transferred over to personnel? How the hell do I know? Asked Jack. I could talk to Pinky Westbrook, Paul Bentley, or Nick McDonald. Jack pointed a fork at him as he spoke. They'll tell you exactly what to do when they tell you, Jerry. It's undetermined as of this time. You leave them out of this. Sherry nibbled on the lasagna for the first time. What's the big picture, Jack? Jack tossed the fork onto the counter. Listen, I'm sick and tired, and I'm heading back to my apartment. See me at the club later in the week. Jerry stared at Jack and released his grip. Then he exited out the front door. Patch raised his brows. He cut the lasagna as Sherry lifted the pasta on her fork. A short time later, Jack sidetracked over to Patch and Sherry. Patchy, the Beachcomber Motel is right down the street. You have rooms. This is good food, said Patch. Right. Listen, Patchy, they'll have the recorder and the rest of the crap here in a second. There'll be some expense money there, too. You just do what they tell you to do. And let me be the first to tell you. If they think you're screwing this up, They'll have somebody else do the job, and that won't bode well for either of you. You're on board now. If you try and back out of this, they'll blow your heads off. Patch looked up with a serious face. Two younger guys carried a two-by-three-foot cardboard box from the back room. Patch thanked him as they set the box on the table. Jack slapped the top of the box. Merry Christmas. He ripped open the side flap. In the center, wrapped in plastic, was an Edison portable reel-to-reel recorder. The Bakelite handheld microphone and cord was stored in the upper half of the case. Just keep the batteries fresh, it's portable. Patch lifted a dozen fresh three and a half inch tapes from a red plastic bag below. Nifty. In the newspaper packing was a long perforated pole with a set of glossy black headphones. You listen with this and you record by hooking it into the recorder. Jack removed a camera from the box. It had a matte reflex 35 millimeter camera box to the right was labeled film. Jack took out another lens, the long distance. 
The last item in the box was a plain manila envelope. Jack handed it to Patch. I was told to keep my nose out of the envelope. The dutiful Jack spun around toward the kitchen. Patch ripped open the side and pulled out a single sheet of yellow bond paper with a typewritten address. Under the paper, a 3x5 photograph revealed a clean-cut man with a lip smile and an open-collared white shirt. No more than 20 years old, he had a crop of fluffy dark hair and pensive eyes. Meet Max at the West 6th Street Bridge, Pease Park, 1 Kingsbury Street, Austin, Texas, 4 p.m., July 27, 1963. Enclosed is a photo of Lee Oswald from two years ago. Lee Oswald, the communist, said Patch in a low voice. It looks like an average guy to me. Patch felt a stack of bills inside the envelope. He slid out another wad of hundreds. Oh boy, how much? He counted quickly and spoke under his breath. Looks like another two grand. This just keeps getting weirder and weirder. She looked into his eyes and rested her chin on her folded hands. You've got your two grand, Patchy. Capiche? Capiche. As Patch drove the Impala down the state highway, headlights shone over the top of the hill behind him. He stared into the rearview mirror. What's the matter, Patch? She asked as she looked over his shoulder. I never trust cars that appear at 2.30 in the morning. It's probably nothing. You know how this thing has made us both jumpy. Jumpy and rich, answered Patch, half smiling as he checked the mirror again. I'll take the rich part. Car is gaining on us. Can you see the make and model, Sherry? White, but I don't know what it is. The kind of people we're dealing with, we can't be too careful. Patch squinted and lifted the pamphlet for the Beachcomber Motel. The interstate exit was just south of the motel. I'm going past the motel and onto the interstate, but I want you to drive. You want a race driver? I do. She slid over Patch and grabbed the wheel. The white car was less than a few hundred yards behind him now. Her speed remained consistent to the ramp. When they were almost on the highway, Ford signaled and followed them up the ramp. Once on the three lane, she gradually increased speed and turned off the radio. Patch grinned as Johnny Cash's ring of fire played on the speakers. We're in a ring of fire, she said. She was now traveling 70 miles an hour and accelerating up the long incline. Ford reached the highway. Upella crested the hill at 90 miles an hour. Patch stopped singing when she jammed on the brake. Then she skidded across the median and crossed the opposing lanes. She glided the car perpendicular to the highway and down the embankment. Patch leaped out the door and shimmied up the embankment on his stomach. She slid against his body. You are very good. I am. The station wagon crossed the hilltop and soon the glowing red taillights faded into the night. Patch put his arm around her. I have no idea who those people were, but they were definitely following us. She kissed him again. Let's get to the beach coma. I'll park the impaler off lot. Capiche? Capiche. Chapter 13 West Street Bridge, Pease Park, Austin, Texas, July 27, 1963, 3.56 p.m. What concerns me, said Patch, as they walked in the heat toward an arched bridge over a gravelly river, is they, whoever they are, recognize your car. They have to find us first, said Sherry, which is what they did at that restaurant. Maybe it's someone who knows Jack, or someone who is tracking Jack or his buddies inside. Roselli asked me about your tag, and then McWillie asked. The sun beat down on his face. 
Fraselli wanted to kill us, he would have just ordered it in L.A. Rosselli thinks you walk on water, Patch. I'd like to know what I did for him. She raised her brows. Maybe you held up a bank. I think it's more than that. Agreed. Patch grinned and leaned against the stone bridge's double rail fence. A light breeze cooled the sizzling Texas sun. He wiped his brow on his Hawaiian shirt sleeve. I was looking at the map. There's a whole stretch of beach along Galveston. I heard there was a god-awful hurricane there around the turn of the century. The beach got wiped out and houses went out to sea. Oh, I saw it. It looks beautiful now on that little map picture. She held both hands and looked up. Incredible that someone has selectively erased your memory. My personal memory. Other things someone didn't want me to remember. Right. They held hands as they turned back to the stream. I keep asking myself what these people are up to. Oswald is being watched by someone with a vested interest, said Sherry. Whatever we observe will help that vested interest. I don't think they care about us as much as they care about where this Oswald is. What would Bond do? She opened her eyes wide and then gripped the fence as she employed her British accent. Sleep it off. Oh, really? asked Patch with a sly grin. Mr. Kincaid, you have gotten us into enough trouble. I have just begun. His smile dropped as a man with an open cocky shirt and slacks walked deliberately toward the bridge. This must be Max. Max wore a green baseball cap and wore black work boots. He gave a quick nod and his smile trailed upward. Max, you are lemon and lime from Dallas. Nice to meet you, said Patch, shaking his hand. Max nodded at Sherry. Ma'am? Let me tell you both that Dallas is not as hostile as people might say. Even the president has come to Dallas in November. Great, said Patch, wiping his brow again. I'm sure our meeting has to do with the Oswald surveillance. Yes, sir, does. You have a photograph of the subject? Yes, said Patch, taking out his wallet. I have an updated photo, said Max, as Patch handed him the picture of the fluffy-haired man. Max placed another tiny photo in Patch's hand. This photo is current. By the way, this will be the only time you'll meet me. Max now faced the river and placed his hands on the bridge rails. I'm here to give you a few ground rules of engagement. Yours is a singular operation for which you will be well paid. You will send, via three and a half inch tapes, a concise and accurate verbal report of the surveillance of Lee Oswald. Do not, and I repeat, do not operate outside that boundary. Stay away from Oswald. Don't let him know you're there. I would ask you also not to deal with Jack Ruby. He has accomplished his job. Understood. If there's trouble, meaning if your lives are threatened or your cover is blown, you will immediately call your original contact, whoever that is. Get out a notebook. Sherry held out a pen and a tiny black notebook. Do not arrive in New Orleans until the evening of 1st August. The following morning, at 900 hours, your envelope will appear in the Lafayette Square station in the government building. The box assigned to you is Post Office Box 300543. Again, do not let the subject know you are watching him. How long will Oswald be under surveillance? asked Sherry. You'll know. When you mail the tapes, do not include a return address. Send them to Mr. Ed Torres, P.O. Box 2119, New York, New York. Return any paperwork in your next mailing. I have it, 
said Shari as she wrote down the remaining numbers. Torres will get the tapes to you, asked Patch. Yes, sir, but Torres is not to be involved in this in any way. Memorize the address. Call your original contact with any problems and you'll have a local contact in New Orleans. Do you have any questions? They shook their heads in unison. Drive to your post office box in New Orleans on Friday, 2nd of August, 1100 hours. Use the lemon and lime names with your contact. We will, said Patch. What do we do in the meantime? You've been granted downtime until the operation commences, said Max, smiling. Please wait here for additional instructions. Good luck. Patch shook his hand. We'll get it done, ma'am, he said again, nodding to Sherry. Max turned slowly and proceeded along the bridge. The breeze picked up, cooling the sweat on Patch's brow. Max rounded the tree clump at the river's edge. If old Max isn't military, then I'm Snow White, said Patch. Funny you don't look like Snow White, she said, smiling. Patch returned the smile and pointed at her. You are a pain. So I've been told. Patch wiped his brow. Sure is hot out here. Patch, how does Rosselli fit in with the surveillance of this Lee Oswald? Patch shook his head as he looked back along the road. And who is Torres? Who the hell knows? Patch again pictured seeing Max somewhere. Obviously, they want to check on Mr. Oswald. That would mean that he's doing a part of something else, something bigger. Exactly. She locked her arm around him and they stared into the ever-moving stream. Patch felt secure with her touch. You are a lemon? Asked a deep voice from behind. That's him, said a chunky, dark-haired man with a Spanish accent. He shook Patch's hand. A man shorter than Patch with pinpoint dark eyes and hair flapped over his head ground his teeth together. The man says he wasn't in Cuba. Mr. Barker? He said, still unsure if this man was Barker. Kincaid. I've made some calls. Mr. Traficante is convinced you have not been in Cuba for the past year and a half. And frankly, that is irrelevant to him and me. I am here for one reason. It's the same reason why I left Batista with my family to go to Miami. We know you didn't open your mouth about Carlos Sanchez, and then you and your professor friend tracked him down and killed him. We all think you have balls, Kincaid. I know that Mr. Traficante does, too. That took some doing. I appreciate your confidence. After Sanchez died, we had the missile crisis. The world is an unsafe place. You're probably asking yourself, what is this tracking of Oswald all about? I've thought about it. Only natural. During the war, I was a bombardier on board a B-17 Flying Fortress. I ended up in Starlock Loop 1 when we crashed. Sixteen months later, the Russians opened up a camp and we were all free. I learned to accept a lot of things and keep my mouth shut. Just remember that when you're following Oswald. Don't ask questions. He squeezed Patch's hand tightly. Let's keep the world safe. We need to do what we need to do. The many are more important than the one. Patch nodded. Barker left without saying anything to Sherry. A hundred feet down the road, they walked by a 1959 blue Chevy. The dark-haired man behind the wheel set down a pair of binoculars. Who the hell is he? As Patch moved with Sherry down the road, the car engine started, but the guy did not drive away as they approached the open window. 
He wore a light blue shirt and sipped on a bottle of Dr. Pepper. Howdy, said Patch, looking at the binoculars on the vinyl seat. Can I help you? Gee, I don't know. If I were a suspicious guy, I'd think you were spying on us. I like to watch the birds along the river. All the way from North Carolina. I have relatives here in Austin. Well, have a nice trip back, said Patch as they walked along the car. Sherry opened her eyes intensely as she stared at him. Patch saw the dealership name in chrome, which was attached above the rear bumper. He waited till they were further down the road. Woolsley Chevrolet, Nags Hill, North Carolina. Maybe he is watching the birds. Let me be honest with you, Patch. I'm scared. I have a bad feeling about all of this. She unwrapped a foiled juicy fruit. Maybe I'm making more of that guy than I need to. Oh, and Patch, there was a sticker on those binoculars. Like an official sticker like a company might put on something they own. The name Buck was written below. Really? OP921E2. And I got his tag number. 101-81939. Patch placed his hands on her shoulders. Why do I now feel this is more important than we thought? Because it is. It's chapter 14. Galveston Island, July 27, 1963, 7.15 p.m. On a desolate stretch of beach, shorebirds soared above the silver-churning waves, disappearing into the milky sand. This day had warmed nicely under a panoply of billowing clouds, hovering high over the isolated beach. Patch aimed a long amplifier tube 50 yards down the beach at Sherry, next to the blanket. Say something! He adjusted the headphones, but when he lifted the left pad, he barely heard her voice. The top piece was detached from the rest of the amplifier. Patch snapped the piece back in place. After a slight buzz, the sound of the breakers, as well as the wind, filled the headphones. Say something! Patch, you make me crazy. You know what I mean. He slowly smiled and trotted up the beach sand. She stood with her hand on her hips, sipping a Coke in her denim cutoffs. Her legs were taut, and her auburn hair ruffled in the breeze. The sun glistened on her white teeth. With a strange grin, Patch looked her over. Amplifier still not working? she asked. Patch set the amplifier and headphones in the case. Her smooth face was heightened by soothing sunshine. He placed his fingers on her cheeks. I heard every word you said. And he took her hand and guided her to the blanket. The waves nudged slowly toward the shore, while the sunlight split the towering clouds. He kissed her softly, and then crazily. Soon they were naked on the blanket, making love over and over as the sun slowly trekked toward the steely horizon. Late in the afternoon, they sat with the blanket wrapped around their naked bodies. She nestled her head on his shoulder. See, Patch, there are certain things you can't forget. I guess not. He kissed her again. Look at the clouds, Patch. If you really look to the top, the swirling gases. They're changing, said Patch. Never the same. We had an English teacher who was forever reciting that part of Tennyson's poem, In Memoriam. Do you know it? I don't. Listen carefully, Patch, she said, gazing into his eyes as she cupped his face in her hands. There rolls the deep where grew the tree. O earth, what changes hast thou seen? There, where the long street roars, hath been the stillness of the central sea. The hills are shadows, and they flow 
from form to form, and nothing stands. They melt like mist, the solid lands. Like clouds, they shape themselves and go. Sounds like life, said Patch. That's it. Everything changes like the clouds. Galveston Island, Texas, August 1st, 1963, 4.40 p.m. On their last day on Galveston Island, Sherry lay on the blanket reading a James Bond book as Patch sipped on his coffee. Didn't you already read Dr. No? 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 I thought, she smiled, I mean, yes. No. She set down the paperback and Patch hovered over her as, as if he were going to do a push-up. He peered into her rich brown eyes as she smiled. I wonder what would happen if we didn't show up tomorrow morning in New Orleans. Patch rolled over in the sand and made a palms-up gesture with his hands. Whoa, whoa, Mr. Vaselli would then make a phone call. Need I say any more? Sherry sat up. I figure this will last a few weeks at most, Patchy. I want you to come back and see Spokane with me when we're done. I mean, more than the milk bottle. What about Ricky Blaze? She hesitated. He's gone, and he ain't coming back. What are you going to do? Straighten out my life? Have somebody pull a few strings to maybe substitute teach? Nope. What do you mean, nope? She asked with her hands on her hips. You can't sit still. You read those Bond books, you want adventure and excitement. She looped her arms around his neck. Well, I guess I came to the right place. Here we are, said Patch, on the edge of the mob, government agents, and the military. He looked out over the breakers. How difficult can it be to watch some guy and take pictures? Oh, the word is dangerous, not difficult. Or they wouldn't be forking over the cash, said Patch. Exactly. She held Patch's shoulders. Ever been to New Orleans? Nope. All I know about New Orleans is Mardi Gras and jazz. Patch pretended to be playing the piano. And don't forget Fats Domino. He spread out with her again on the blanket and looked up at the moving high clouds again. There go the changing clouds. She held his hand. So many things out of our control. I wish I could remember, he said, still looking skyward at the reforming clouds. You will. I need to get to a doctor when this is over and unlock my head. And what about Sanchez? What if his buddies know I'm around? They won't know about us if we stay in the background. And we should be able to. I had the limo dream again last night. Dark car heading into trouble across the prairie. And then troops, all young men, marching into the jungle. The jungle? That's weird. Or weirder. She held him. Must mean something, Patch. It has to. Creepy. Patch smiled and had her juicy fruit pack in his hand. Gum? Don't mind if I do, she said, taking out a foiled wrap piece. How long's the drive to New Orleans? I haven't even checked. About six hours, said Patch. If we leave early, we can be at the post office by 11 a.m. He shook his head. What's the matter? I have that feeling again. Like when I'm in that repeating dream, Sherry. Impending doom. Chapter 15. Lafayette Square, New Orleans, Louisiana. Friday morning, August 2nd, 1963. 10.57 a.m. On Friday morning before they left, just after dawn, Patch again familiarized himself with the linear black sound amplifier that connected the amp and the little tape recorder. 
All the Ansco chrome color slides they had taken in Galveston were segregated from the New York mailing. He placed a red and yellow 35mm canister into its aluminum case. By mid-morning in New Orleans, Sherry had parked the Impala near the post office adjacent to a city park. The map designated the post office as the massive stone building across the busy street. They rounded a garden display and stepped toward the columns under a huge flapping American flag. With tremendous trepidation, he climbed with her up the stone stairs. Then he pulled open the heavy doors. The voluminous federal building smelled of ink and varnish oak. Wide grainy brown floor panels were glossed to a spit shine. The brass rim post office boxes formed a wall straight ahead and to the right of the counter. Each box had a tiny window with gold and black stenciled shadowed numbers. The dark numbered wall clock neared 11 a.m. As they passed the oak tables and wide windows, a man with scruffy eyebrows and a brown touring cap rounded the corner. He wore white pants as if he worked in a fast food restaurant. Grab patches up around with a sense of recognition. He spoke in a low, baritone voice. Patch Kincaid, you're alive. I'm Lemon, who are you? Right, right, you're covered, very good. He extended his hand to Sherry, and then he turned to Patch. I'm, well, you know me as Harold Easley, for Christ's sake, a.k.a. David Ferry. You know him, Patch? asked Sherry. Know him? He placed his hand to the side of his mouth and lowered his voice. I flew him into Cuba during the Bay of Pigs ahead of the invasion, but now I'm supposed to refer to him as Mr. Lemon. <laughs> Sherry raised her brows as Ferry handed Patch a tiny brass key. P.O. Box 300543, said Patch, studying the etched numbers. We all have our required duties. I know nothing except I'm giving you the key, Patch. Thanks, Harold, uh, David. Ferry nodded. He took two steps toward the outside doors and then abruptly spun around. You know, they all swore to God that you were executed in Cuba after the invasion. God love you, Patch. You fooled them all. With his words, Ferry marched across the door panels. Who the hell is he? asked Patch. Sherry shrugged her shoulders and made a smiley face as she raised her brows again. Ferry exited outside and the doors closed behind him. Patch saw him look left and then right down the street. Another piece of your big puzzle, Patch. Weren't there government intelligence agencies involved in the Bay of Pigs? Yep. She nodded and followed the numbered brass boxes down the wall. Then she gestured with her open hand. 300543. Patch, still confused about Ferry flying into Cuba, backed up to the box and inserted the brass key. He opened the tiny door and pulled out a single crisp manila envelope with a typewritten white label, lemon and lime. That's us, said Sherry. He tore open the envelope with his index finger. Ten $100 bills with Benjamin Franklin again staring at him lay flat on a sheet of heavyweight yellow paper. The instructions were simple. Mitaladio del Valle, La Petite Fleur, 9 p.m., August 2nd, 1963. What's this all about? And who's this guy, de Valle? Could be anyone. Patch fanned the bills. I don't like the way this is going. She held the money and grinned. Well, it's not that bad. A lot of cash. He shook his head. This is strange. You are a threat to the intelligence people. Rosselli said not to go near the intelligence guys, and now here's this fairy character saying he personally 
flew you into Cuba during the Bay of Pigs fighting two years ago. Patch locked the box. He mumbled as he placed the key under the plastic picture holder in his wallet. I don't remember a damn thing about it. I can't let them know I don't know anything. I have to go through with this. These people play for keeps. La Petite Fleur, 675 Canal Street, New Orleans, Louisiana, Friday night, August 2nd, 1963, 9 p.m. Patch turned up the radio as he drove under the electric rail car lines. On the international stage, Ken Philby. It's a double agent, according to Investia at Radio Moscow. At the beginning of July, Britain confessed Philby was the third man in the Burgess and McLean's Soviet spy ring. Where's James Bond when you need him, asked Patch. Bond would have found Philby out years ago. In the People's Daily, the People's Republic of China condemned the Soviet Union as being freaks and monsters for allowing unconditional concessions and capitulation to the imperialists. The Red Chinese were, of course, talking about the partial nuclear test ban treaty with the United States and the United Kingdom. I knew that treaty would cause problems, she said. He checked all the little shops and cafes as he searched for La Petite Fleur. What about Kennedy? I'm sure the power makers don't like the fact that we're in bed with the Russians. Beware, New Orleans. Hurricane Arlene is off the coast of Bermuda with an uncertain trajectory. WNOE will keep you advised. And now back to Ron Bracken and the Tops and Pops here on WNOI. The next song blasted like a car racing from a dead stop. Patch swung the Impala gingerly to the curb around 100 feet from the corner cafe called La Petite Fleur. A red and green neon flower spread over a thin wooden door that constantly opened and closed. Sherry spoke the words whispered at the beginning of the song. Wipe out? Well, I hope we don't get wiped out. They're talking about a surfer patch. Sometime we'll dance to it. I saw an amusement park by the beach. He nodded, but his face was serious as he stared across the street. Let's go find Diwali. Patch leaned toward her. Nervous? Yes. They slid outside and he locked all the doors. Music from the bar trickled up the sidewalk. A single window had vertical iron bars. The mixture of jazz grew louder and a conglomeration of smoke escaped onto the sidewalk every time the door opened. She hung on his side as he approached the door. It burst open and a little guy in a t-shirt rumbled onto the sidewalk. Inside a gyrating dock man fanned a golden saxophone in the haze. Patrons dotted around the bar and tables like billiard balls on an uneven table. The air was warm and stuffy. Patch led her up to the chubby little man with the red nose behind the bar. I'm looking for Eladio Diwali. The man mixed some gin with tonic water and sneered at Patch. So what? Is he here? Who the hell knows? I don't know who he is. Can you ask somebody? I'm busy. Continue to mix the drink. Let's see, this is going to be fun, said Patch as they sidestepped down the bar. He asked the other bartenders about Diwali. She spoke over the saxophone's blare. I think we've been had. I know we're dealing with a tight organization. I can't believe that P.O. box message will get messed up. From a booth next to a faded green restroom door, a man with a high forehead and large brown eyes waved him over with his fingers. The little man stood and shook Patch's hand. He shouted over the saxophone. Lemon. Lime. Please sit down. Thank you so much for meeting with me tonight. Patch slid into the booth with Sherry and faced the open call at Diwali. My instruction is to buy local cattle for you. 
you are a Cuban? He produced a wide and sustained smile. Then he lit a tipperillo and shook out the match on the old table. Yes, I fled in 1959. I've been back to Cuba with my men last year. Castro and his regime are evil. I feel these things deeply. Now Kennedy has stopped the raids. Have we met before? No. But your contact met me. No comment. He wrote down a number in blue ink on a white napkin. This is a number you will call me. Contact me immediately. Just ask for Vito. Thank you. What it's worth, my friend, I have no idea what your instructions are. I am only here to protect you. He looked toward the door and around the bar. One more thing. What's that? I was told to tell you that Carlos Sanchez's friends must never know you are alive. They will make sure. Where are his friends? They are in Havana. They will want you dead if they know you're alive. That is the word. Why? He laughed. Jesus! It's because of you Carlos was shot dead! He stood like a soldier and grasped Patch's hand. I hope, my friend, you do not have to call Vito. Patch leaned toward her as Diwali pushed open the Canal Street door and then he was gone. This is becoming way too dangerous. A gray-haired man in a white shirt kicked open the front door. The guy's hair was pushed back and messy. His eyes were intense as he walked along the bar. He spoke to no one. Then he extended his hand. Good to see you again, Patch. I have a message for you. A large pearl-handled handgun was stuffed into a side holster. How do you know my name? Got the innocent routine. I ain't got time for it. The message is, proceed according to plan. Yeah, right. Hey, don't be a wise ass. I don't like bullshit. You got that? I'll whip your ass. Okay. I want you to get a nice hotel downtown. I suggest the shower, he said, placing five $100 bills in Patch's hand. Call your contact and get him a phone number. Very good things about you since I last saw you. How did we meet? He flipped an orange card to Patch. Cut the shit, Patch. You're a private investigator. You know that, Patch. Don't call me unless you're cornered. As far as you're concerned, I was never here tonight. Not tonight, not tomorrow, never. Understood. One more thing. I was told by a little birdie that you should take a walk down Decatur Street to the Havana Bar before you go to the hotel. Lee Oswald might be in there. You didn't hear this from me. Okay. Good luck. You looked at Sherry. Ma'am, Mr. Bannister. Bannister exited the same way he had come into the bar. I honestly don't remember that man. He remembers you. Maybe Cuban intelligence took away your memories. Patch threw back his head and laughed. You're asking me? At the end of the street, a blue 1959 Chevy pulled away from the curb ahead. That's the car in Austin, shouted Patch. Buck, the bird watcher, joked Sherry. Obviously, Buck is working for somebody, she said. We need to have someone trace that plate and find out who this guy is. He raised up his wristwatch. It was 12.35 a.m. The early morning stillness was broken by loud talk and music from the bars ahead. He walked with his arm around Sherry down Decatur Street. People clutched chairs and each other in the low light. The bar on his left was called the Havana Bar. Obviously the bird watcher is working for somebody, she said. 
Why, because of the number on his binoculars? Sherry nodded as a tall black woman in a white dress, reeking of booze and an overpowering cheap perfume, staggered out and threw her arms around a man smoking a cigarette. The guy ripped her arms away. Get lost! She blew a kiss to him in the doorway and then started down the street. Patch thought he saw Oswald inside at one of the tables. He checked his wallet. Sherry looked at the photo they had received in Austin. Oswald. They edged inside the doorway. Oswald sat next to a slightly older Cuban in a sleeveless blue sweater. The Cuban's well-formed biceps bulged in his short-sleeved shirt. He ordered a tequila in Spanish. Oswald quickly drank the tequila when it arrived. Man keeps late hours. With Cubans? Doesn't look like a loner, but he sure looks ill from that drink. Patch held her inside the open door. Somebody brought Oswald the lemonade. Once he finished the lemonade, the group stood at the table. Patch steered back to the street. He quickly backtracked to the impala with Sherry before Oswald and his friends came outside. They're shelling out thousands to watch a guy who spends his time drinking lemonade and tequila after midnight. This should prove real interesting. Patch's stomach jolted when he saw four men in the shadows of an alcove about 50 feet away. Don't turn, there's four guys watching us ahead. A bull-necked man with a sloping forehead, pinpoint eyes, and a buzz haircut stood ahead of the others. They all wore sport shirts and chino pants. See a white station wagon? She asked. No, but that big guy has arms like bridge supports. Have you seen them before, Patch? She asked, looking inside the Havana bar. I've never seen them, but they're definitely watching us. Let's scoot into the bar and hope there's a back door. Patch squeezed her hand and stepped into the chattering conversation inside the bar. Quickly, they navigated around the patrons and out the rear door. Once in the side street, they began running. They knew we'd be here. Bannister knew we'd be here. Has he set us up? She asked. No. Maybe the people he works for, or who work for him. He guided her forward. Back to the hotel. If there's trouble, I'll call herself. In the words of Patch Kincaid, this is becoming very dangerous. Individuals associated with the Kennedy assassination are crossing his path. I am very reluctant to create never-ending scenes containing these historical figures. One cannot be sure if he's capturing the essence of the character. So I keep within the context and places where they operated and keep it at a minimal. And we have seen Lee Oswald in the Habana bar. Patch says he doesn't look like a loner. And I think that Oswald was an introvert in the Jungian sense, but not a total loner as described in the Warren Commission. Let me check my ticket here. It's time to board the plane. I'll be back next week as the cauldron in New Orleans starts boiling a little bit. Have a good evening. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.